Well, good morning, church. Good to see all of you here today. And uh, today we're going to continue our Kingdom Changers series. And I'm guessing this morning that no matter how young or old you are, I'm assuming probably most of us in here have read a biography of somebody, right? And a biography is simply the stories, the facts, the data that covers someone's life in particular, and it's put in the form of a book. Now, in order to have a biography written about you, that means that you probably had to do something pretty significant in life or be a pretty remarkable person, right? And that's what makes our kingdom changer story so interesting today, is that our kingdom changer would be shocked to know that people who were living 3,000 years after he did would be reading his biography because he didn't see himself as anything remarkable. He didn't see himself as anything special or significant. You know what his name was? His name was Gideon. Now, when I say that name Gideon, some of you are thinking about that guy that sneaks into your hotel room and puts Bibles in the nightstands, right? That's a whole different other Gideon. The Gideon I'm talking about today is largely known for that story in the Bible where God used him and 300 men under him that he was leading to defeat a vast army of 100,000 of their enemies. 300 versus 100,000. It's kind of like the original 300 story. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. I've kind of already spoiled the story for you about showing you where God took Gideon and what he did. But we're not going to talk about the victory. We're going to look at the backstory. Because here's what I'm convinced of. That oftentimes we see the men and women at their great pinnacle moment, the moment where God is working and amazing things are happening. But there's always a backstory before we get to that moment. So before we talk about the myth and the legend of Gideon, we're going to talk about the man Gideon this morning, okay? If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6. If you don't have your Bibles, if you have your phone, turn to the same place, Judges chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever felt inadequate? Or you struggle sometimes with feelings of inadequacies? I think that's part of the human character, right? We, we're, we're always questioning, how do we measure up? And there's so many different areas of life that we question or we feel inadequate in, right? Some of you this morning might feel inadequate financially. You look at your friends, your peers, the people you run with, and they look like financially they've got everything together, and they're just so far ahead of the game financially, and you just feel like you're scratching and crawling to, to get out of the red, into the black, and you just feel very, very inadequate. Some of you feel very inadequate when it comes to your appearance. You don't even like looking in the mirror because you don't like what's looking back at you, and you're always comparing your body, your face, your looks to somebody else. Or maybe some of you students this morning, you feel inadequate because, you know, you bust your hump and you, you study and you read and you prepare and you do everything you can to get ready to make good grades. And the best, the absolute best you can pull off is B's and C's. And you've got friends who never take notes, never study for the test, and they've got a 4.0. They're always acing the test. Any of you parents ever feel inadequate? You look around at like your your friends and their kids, and their kids are always excelling and high achievers, and you can't even get your kid out of bed in the morning, right? Or what about spiritually? Do you ever feel spiritually inadequate when you're next to somebody else? Your 
you may be talking with one of your friends one day and your friend says, yeah, man, something happened in my life this week that reminded me exactly of what God said in Habakkuk 1.13. And you're like, there's a book called Habakkuk in the Bible? Or you hear your friend pray, and you're just convinced that as soon as your friend said amen, that God in heaven said, Jesus, did you hear that prayer, Jesus? That was amazing. But when you pray... You feel like God's just kind of yawning. You're not the same caliber. You're not as adequate as, as those people around you. What is it in us that, that just drives feelings of inadequacy over and over and over in all these different areas of our life? Well, I think they can be attributed to a variety of things. One thing, I think, is just the past criticisms that we faced. Just wounds that are in our past, wounds that were doled out in the family we grew up in, wounds that were given to us by a spouse in our marriage, or wounds that came at the hands of Christian friends, or from a coach, or a teacher at some point in our life, and it's just like, we've allowed that wound to set in, and it's like mentally, we're carting it around every day like this big old wheelbarrow, and it never gets smaller, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger because we've never dumped it. So you got all these past criticisms. Another thing I think that can do this to us, why we feel inadequate, is all these unrealistic compliments. Some of you, since the day you were born, you've been told, you're the best, you're a superstar. I can't wait to see what amazing things are done in your life. And you think to yourself, yeah, yeah, actually, I'm not that good. I mean, I might have had one or two shining moments, but that's about all I got. And let me tell you what, folks, when you're praised so much from the cradle through your growing up years, the prospect of failure can be terrifying because you're used to people talking, talking about how you're such a winner and how you're so great and you're the best, and they never see you fail. In fact, those of you who are 35 and younger who are here today, I say this in all seriousness, you probably struggle with this. Here's why, because those of us who were over 35, we actually had to work and accomplish something to get a trophy. And I, I say that in all seriousness, because what we've done is we've, we've raised this generation that's come behind my generation, who we've rewarded, and they never had to work or succeed, and they got something for it. So you've got these adults today, this generation of adults, who are just so fearful of failing because they realize the real world does not give out participation trophies on a daily basis, right? So I think that can contribute to our inadequacies. It just drives these feelings of inadequacies because I'm always used to being told how great I am and how wonderful I am and getting awarded for something I didn't even do just for being me, right? Something else that can do this is unrealistic comparison. Like we talked about earlier, we compare ourselves constantly to other people. So if someone's smarter, or so if I think I'm smart, there's always going to be someone smarter. If I think I'm wealthy, somebody else is always going to be wealthier. If I think I'm great looking, somebody else is always going to be seen as better looking than me. There's just this constant, constant give and take of comparing ourselves to other people in so many different kinds of categories. And again, this kind of comparison just drives those feelings of inadequacies. And I want you to, to understand this morning, folks, the enemy that you and I have against us will use that, capitalize on that as much as he possibly can. 
Here's the mistake we make. We think what the enemy wants to do is make me corrupt. He wants me to do bad things so that I'll be a bad person, so that I'll be ineffective. No. Just as much, he wants to make you feel inadequate so that you will be ineffective as well. That's how he works. He doesn't just want to corrupt you. He wants to make you feel like you will never, ever measure up. And you know what? The social media today is just driving this comparison and inadequacy at levels like we've never seen before. To the point, we actually have psychologists coming up with things like social media disorder to describe why somebody's so screwed up because they're comparing their life to all these beautiful, perfect, wonderful, flawless lives that they see on the computer screen flowing before them every day. And it makes a person feel about that big. And this is why God's word is so crucial. Because it just counters all the lies, all the comparisons, all the inadequacies that we feel every day. I was talking with somebody this week who's just really struggling to understand God's forgiveness in their life. Does God really accept me? Has he, has he really forgiven me? Can God really use somebody like me? And our feelings, man, they can do a number on us. So we don't trust in our feelings because our feelings can manipulate us big time. We can be manipulated by them. We trust in what God has said about me, not what I say about myself. Amen? That's where our truth source comes from. So this morning, I want you to see three specific lessons from the life of Gideon that doesn't just apply to Gideon. It applies to all of us this morning. So again, we're in, we're in uh, Judges chapter 6. Starting in verse 4. Follow along with me if you would. The Midianites are just oppressing. They are crushing the Israelites, making life miserable for them. So Judges 6-4 starts off talking about the Midianites. And here's what it says. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them on their, or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So you get the picture of what's going on here? You got these people coming into Israel. They're taking their stuff. They're destroying their crops. They're overwhelming themselves with their own people, their own animals. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. Now typically when you thresh wheat, what's the whole purpose of threshing wheat? It's to separate what? The wheat from the chaff. The chaff's very lightweight. It's the, the, the stuff that can't be used for anything. It's the, the garbage part of the wheat. So you throw it up in the air, and ideally you want to be in a place where there's a lot of wind, a lot of circulation, so that it can blow the chaff away, and so the grains of wheat fall to the ground. So you want to be outdoors somewhere, probably high somewhere, where there's good wind flow, good air flow. You do not want to be in a wine press. A wine press is basically this stone hole in the ground where there is no air flow. So why is Gideon in a wine press? Because at best, he's afraid the Midianites are going to take his wheat 
And at worst, he's afraid the Midianites are going to take his life. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon is not a warrior. Gideon's a farmer. But it does not matter what you are. It only matters what God sees. And that's lesson number one for you today. That God sees so much more in you and in me than we would ever see in ourselves. And I've got story after story after story after story in Scripture to prove that point over and over and over again. That God sees so much more in you and so much more in me than we would ever see in ourselves. Because again, what do we see? Inadequacies, failures, shortcomings, flaws, all the ways I can't do something instead of all the reasons why I can. But I promise you today, church, God, your Father, God, your Creator, sees your capabilities and not your inabilities. You know how I know that? Because we got those stories all over the Bible. It comes to this old guy named Abram, and he says, Abram, you know what? I'm going to change your name. You're not going to be known as Abraham, the father of many nations. The only problem is Abraham did not have a child. He's, he's childless at that point that God gives him a new name. So is this like some sort of cruel joke on God's part? No. Here's what it is. God does not call you by what he sees. God calls you by what you can be. And lo and behold, after some time, after years had passed, Abraham had a child. And that child had some children. And those children had children. And those children had children. To where we're at thousands of years later in our earth, if you ask any Jew walking planet earth, who's your daddy? They point back to a guy named Abraham, the father of many nations. Because God doesn't call us what we are. God calls us to what we can be. Same thing with a guy in the New Testament named Peter. Jesus says, Peter, you know what? Time for a name change today. You're no longer going to be known as Peter. You're going to be known as the rock. Cephas. Peter the rock? I mean, have you read about that guy? He's impetuous. He's fickle. He suffers from foot and mouth disease because he's always putting his foot in his mouth, right? And yet when Jesus ascends to heaven... Peter becomes this rock-solid leader of the church, taking it to be the fastest-growing faith in the Roman world. Peter! Because he doesn't call us what we are. He calls us what we can be. But because of our feelings of inadequacies, we have a hard time believing that God sees something in me that I don't even see in myself. And guess who else does that? Gideon. Same exact thing. Here's, what, here's how he pushes back. Verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, he says, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. 
Here's what Gideon's saying. Lord, your people are hurting now. Have you seen what kind of dire straits we're in with our enemies surrounding us, with our enemies threatening us, with our enemy taking what is rightfully ours that you gave to us? Lord, some of that stuff you did years ago when you brought our ancestors out of Egypt, some of those plagues, some of those parting of the Red Sea, some of that miracle stuff would come in really handy right now, God. Because even though we were delivered from one oppressor, we're now being oppressed by another. And so he pushes back against God. God, if you're really there, why don't you do something? Here's the amazing thing, the funny thing. Gideon is asking God to do something. And the whole reason God is talking to Gideon is because God wants to do something through him. Just like I told you last week about Moses. You are God's answer. Don't just point out what's wrong. Don't just complain to God saying, I wish you'd fix this. I wish you'd do something about that. I wish this were better. God, why aren't you working and moving in these ways? God says you're the reason that you're here in this place at this time to do something about that. Don't just come to me. You make yourself available and I will work through it through you. I'll do something through you. I'll make it better through you. Here's what we get in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, this is key, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? God says, Gideon, I want you to go right now in the strength and the ability that I have given you. I'm commissioning you to go. Here's the second lesson today, friends. God has already given to you, God has already given to me so much more than we could possibly imagine. But it's up to you and it's up to me to release what God has given to us. You remember Moses? He led dumb sheep for 40 years. Do you think he ever thought he had the capacity within himself to lead a million people out of slavery against the most important, most impressive, powerful military empire of the day? Do you think he ever thought he had that within himself? What about Nehemiah, the cupbearer? All he did was taste the king's wine and eat the king's food to make sure it wasn't poison. Do you think he ever saw himself leading a rebuilding campaign that in his day and in his time was unprecedented? Or little David? All he knew was that somebody was smack-talking about his God. And somebody needed to do something about those Philistines that were blaspheming their God. David had never killed another man in battle. But he kills a Philistine. Not just a Philistine, their champion. The nine-foot-nine-inch heavyweight champion of the world. But what about Peter? Peter had saw himself only as being this fisherman. He'd said, this is going to be my lot in life. I'm going to be a fisherman. I'm going to catch fish until the day that I die. Do you think that he ever thought there was the capacity within him 
to, like I said earlier, lead the fastest growing religious movement in the day and to impact thousands upon thousands of souls for eternity. Or Paul, who at one time said in the word, when it comes to all the sinners in the world, there's no one worse than me. And yet the world has yet to see a missionary as effective as the Apostle Paul. Friends, here's where our problem is. 1 Peter 1.3 I wonder how much we believe this. His divine power Who's he talking about there? Let me give you a hint. Only one person's divine. Who are we talking about here? Yeah, it's God. It's the Lord. It's, it's, our, it's our Savior. His divine power, which is unequaled, not comparable to anything else, that has given us, say the word with me, everything. We have everything that we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God says you're already equipped. Just like the song we sang this morning. No, no matter the battle, the victory's already ours. It's already secure because it's not my strength, not my power I go forward in. It's the power of God working through me. And this was Paul's prayer for his church at Ephesus. Listen to Ephesians 3.16. Here's a pastoral prayer that he prays to this church. I pray... That out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do, God wants to do something. God wants to work, God wants to fix, God wants to solve, God wants to be a solution. So to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's what God is looking for. And having a very hard time finding, I believe, those men and those women who really believe in their heart of hearts that God has given me and he has equipped me with more than I could ever possibly imagine. And I'm going to release that. Verse 15. Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replies. So God's already commissioned him. God's already said, go forward. I'm with you. I'm calling you. Go. But here's the excuse. Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? Notice the key word there. What's he say? How can what? Why? He still doesn't get it. It's not about you, Gideon. God has said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you the strength. How can I save Israel? My clan 
is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. You would think that Gideon and Moses had to be distant cousins, right? Because they both used the same excuse. Moses used the inadequacy last week. Gideon uses inadequacy this week. But again, isn't that what God specializes in? Using the weak vessels, the not-so-special vessels, to show his strength, his power, so that he gets the glory. Even Gideon's hometown, Ophrah. Some of you thought it said Oprah, didn't you? It doesn't say Oprah, it's Ophrah. Do you know what Ophrah means in the original Hebrew? Place of dustiness. How would you like to tell people that's where you're from? That's my hometown. I'm from the place of dustiness. So Gideon says, I'm the youngest in my family. I come from the smallest clan, from a dusty little village, and he's hiding in a wine press when God says to him, you are a mighty warrior. And here's the key to Gideon's story. It's the key to every story ever done by any man or woman to do something great for God. Judges 6.16. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will. Not you might, not maybe, not you can. You will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Lesson number three. God working through you, God working through me, is less about you than what you think. It's always about God. Paul says in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. When you're doing good God's will, you cannot fail because God's will is perfect and he will see you through. So let me be a little bit vulnerable this morning with you. I get people asking me all the time, Solomon, do you ever get nervous before you preach? All the time, folks. My wife will tell you, I still don't sleep good on Saturday nights. Every single Saturday night, I never get a good night's rest. Every time I'm sitting down here before I come up, my heart's a-racing. My mind's going. My body's starting to sweat. It's just starting to come on. Here's why. Because I still wonder at times, and I'm still amazed by the fact, God, how could you use someone like me to do something for you? I come from a no-account town. I was an average student, did not attend a prestigious school, have no peculiar talents and I don't have any celebrities or bigwigs in my family that I can point to so yeah I wonder quite often how I measure up 
then I'm reminded that just like today, working in me, God has done the same thing through men and women all throughout his word. And the story is the same. That God working in their life or God working in my life is so much less about me than what I think. It's all about him. All about him. I've told you before, folks. I'm just the mailman. I didn't write the mail. My job is simply to deliver it to you every week. I try my best to explain it to you, but it has to be up to you to take the mail and to do something with it. I can't change one single human being. It's not my job. The job is for the people of God to be ready for the Holy Spirit in this place to speak to them and to be willing to say, yes, Lord, and to leave ready to do it. And that's freeing. That is liberating, knowing that that weight is not on my shoulders. My job is just to deliver the mail, to read the mail, to talk about the mail, to apply the mail, to give the mail to you. And what happens with the mail in your life is all between you and God. It's not between you and me. So let me ask you a question. If God sees so much more in you than you see in yourself, if God has given each and every one of us in here today so much more than we could possibly imagine, and if God working through you depends so much less upon you than what you think, then I got a question for you this morning. If those things are true, what are you not attempting that God has called you to do? What has fear done to you? I saw a quote this week somewhere that said, fear has shattered more dreams than failure ever has. Maybe. God's calling you to reach your neighbor or your coworker with the love of Christ. Can I ask you a question? Does God love your neighbor and your coworker? Does he want them to come to a saving knowledge of his son? So do you think just maybe that if you dare to step on a limb and you share what God's done in your life with your neighbor, your coworker, that God just might send you in his power? Maybe this morning God is calling some of you as a family to foster children, to adopt children. See, it seems like somewhere in the Bible it says that God has a heart for orphans. I might be wrong on that, but I think that's in there somewhere. Do you think maybe God would desire to place children who need a family with a family who loves God and could lead those children to God through the course of their influence with that child? What are you waiting for? Maybe God's calling you to start a small group. Here's what I know. God loves it when his people come together in community and they can share life and they can encourage one another and they can take one another's inadequacies away and they can point people to God in the context of that group. I think God would be behind that. I think God would empower you to do that. 
Maybe God is calling some of you today and you just keep saying no, 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 no to be in a position of leadership or influence somewhere in the community where you can represent God's heart and God's ways and God's thoughts and God's values because we need people like that in the community. So why aren't you answering the call? Maybe God's calling you to go on a mission trip. Because I think Jesus did say something about go into all the world and make disciples. I think that's somewhere on his radar. But I'll bet you he'll be with you if you say, I'll go. I want to show you a picture right now. Hold on your seats because you're going to be taken back by this picture. How many of you are just amazed by that? You just look at that and you're like, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. How many of you today, if I, if I had the original photograph of that out in the foyer today and said, it goes to the first person who gives me 500 bucks, you couldn't get in your wallet fast enough to give me that money. Okay, let's, let's say maybe not 500 let's say $100. That beautiful, one-of-a-kind photograph for sale in the foyer today for 100 bucks. Any, any takers today? Would it surprise you to know this morning that that photograph taken by Andreas Gursky sold in 1999 for $4.3 million? You should have bought it. <laughs> Been a really good investment for you, friends. But I know why you didn't. Because I wouldn't have bought it either. Nothing special, nothing significant, nothing remarkable about that picture one bit. I would not even use it as a screensaver. Anybody else? Doesn't even meet screensaver quality in my mind. I show you that picture for one reason. Because a lot of us in our lives, we don't understand how God could love somebody as unremarkable, as insignificant as me. How could God have that much value for someone like me in his heart? truth of the matter is he does and you know how I know that I know that without a shadow of a doubt you know how I know it because he paid for me so much more than 4.3 million dollars he paid a lot more you might feel like this picture this morning nothing special here nothing remarkable here nothing significant here just kind of move on there's nothing to see here that's not how God sees you. Any of you. C.S. Lewis once said, it's important what we think of God, but it's infinitely more important what God thinks of us. Let me tell you what God thinks of you this morning, folks. 
it's symbolized in this piece of bread. That God says, I love you so much, I'm willing to pay my life for your life. I'm willing to be pierced in hands and feet and brow and side. I'm willing to be scourged on my back and on my legs and on my chest. I'm willing to give my flesh for your flesh. Greater love has no man for another than that he lay his life down for his friends. That's how valuable you and I are, folks. That God gave his body for us. So let's partake this morning in remembrance of that. And lastly, the blood. Listen to me. Do you know what this blood represents? This blood does not just represent what Jesus shed on the cross. This blood represents a whole lifetime of Jesus. From the time he was born until the time he died, he followed without deviating one bit the perfect will of God. Never once succumbing to sin. Never once living in disobedience. Always following, always faithful, always in sync with the perfect, absolute, moral will of God. Unlike you and me. You know why that's significant? Because if Jesus had not lived the perfect life, his blood on the cross would be meaningless. That's why the Bible talks about the innocent dying for the guilty. The perfect dying for the imperfect. And we think, no, that's Jesus, you know. He kind of had this passion life. He could just will himself not to sin. No, do you know what the Bible says? He was tempted in every way you and I are. Every way he was tempted. Every day he faced, he encountered the possibility of sin, temptation. And yet he did not. So don't underestimate what this blood represents. This blood represents perfection. A lifetime of living in complete obedience to God because he knew the day of the cross was coming and that the cross would be emptied of its power had he not lived that life of perfection. That's how valuable you are to him. That he was willing to live each day devoted, strong, strengthened, the perfect will of God because he knew that your soul and my soul depended on it. So let's now acknowledge the beauty of that gift now as we partake. I want to leave you with one final thought from Ephesians 2.10. Paul says here in this passage, for we are God's handiwork. Some of you might have a translation that says we are God's masterpiece. Something he's creating, he's crafting, he's, he's working, he's moving. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's what God wants his people to do, to be about doing good works in the name of Christ, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So it's like, I, I get this picture here of this whole warehouse, this heavenly storehouse of just all these good works that God wants to see done in the world. He just needs men and women to say no to their fears, to believe that God sees in us more than we see in ourselves, to believe that God has given us more than we could ask or imagine, to believe that it's so much less about me than what I think. And to say, God, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to be the solution to the problem. And when you take a willing human being 
and an all-powerful God, time and time again, friends, we've seen that. That is an unbeatable combination. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, I pray that we won't use excuses anymore. We won't say, God, do something for me. We'll say, God, do something through me. We'll be part of the solution. I pray for the people here, Lord, that that feel you compelling them, working in them, moving them to do something, and yet their fears are holding them back. Where it's excuse after excuse after excuse as to why not. And I pray, Lord, that we would be emboldened to see your power that's at work in your word, and that you're not done. Human history is still being written. You still need men and women today like you needed them thousands of years ago to fulfill your will. And we need to step up and claim the power that's ours as your children, as your heirs, so that you might be glorified, our great King. Lord, Help us to be a people that say yes. No more excuses. Would you pray in the name of Jesus?